trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hi there, and welcome to the show. Yep, I'm glad you could join me today. I'm going to try to make it worth your while. Got some thought-provoking commentary. Maybe a uh, gentle but uh, well-intended kick in the seat of the pants. I know I need them from time to time. Happy to pass one along if you need one as well. And, of course, our show brought to you by great sponsors, including my friends at HSLAmmo.com. Actually, that's my friend, Spencer Worthington. The Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Pure Light. Actually, their website is pure-light.com. And the maker of these incredible uh, air-cleaning light bulbs, as well as lifesavingfood.com and MonticelloCollege.org. You can check out every one of these sponsors in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I hope you'll do so. And let's dive right in to today's uh, topics here. Um, this, is, this is kind of a tough truth. In fact, this is a really hard truth, I think, for most people to accept. But I'm going to put it out there anyway, because I think you and I are probably adults, right? We don't, we don't need Uncle Joe Biden to, you know, tell us and manage our, our information for us. Well, that's good. No, but you can't look at that because you might, you might think bad thoughts. So here's the truth. The worst atrocities committed throughout human history have had a common component. Here's the component. No matter whose twisted mind conceived and ordered those atrocities, what made them possible, what brought them into reality, was the obedient people who chose to carry them out. You ever thought about that? I mean, this should be cause for pause for all of us because, hey, we're all good people, right? We're all, we obey the law. We're good, you know, productive citizens. Nobody would ever think twice about us. And that's the problem. Sometimes the right thing to do is exactly the opposite of what everybody else is doing. Barry Brownstein has a powerful essay on why good people enable totalitarians. He says, in the searing Soviet-era novel, Life and Fate, Vasily Grossman reveals the mindset that supports totalitarianism, sparing neither fascism nor communism. Now, as a journalist, Grossman was there in the aftermath of the genocide of Jews in the Ukraine by the Nazis and their civilian collaborators. Grossman describes how the Nazis, abetted by the crimes of Stalin, first had to stir feelings of hatred towards Jews before citizens would follow orders. So he sets the stage with the matter-of-fact description of how infected cattle are disposed of. Quote, before slaughtering infected cattle, various preparatory measures have to be carried out. Pits and trenches must be dug. The cattle must be transported to where they are to be slaughtered. Instructions must be issued to qualified workers. If the local population helps the authorities to convey the infected cattle to the slaughtering points and to catch beasts that have run away, they do this not out of hatred of cows and calves, but out of an instinct for self-preservation. End quote. I mean, that's pretty chilling. You're, you're probably making the connection as I am, too, and thinking, holy crap, you apply that kind of thinking to human beings? Yeah, 
And that's exactly what some totalitarians have done and the people who obeyed them have done over time. Barry Brownstein says anti-Semitics are not necessarily bloodthirsty. So to gain compliance, special campaigns shaped the mindset of the general population. Again, this is from Grossman's writings. Quote, similarly, when people are to be slaughtered in mass, the local population is not immediately gripped by a bloodthirsty hatred of the old men, women and children who are to be destroyed. It is necessary to prepare the population by means of a special campaign. And in this case, it's not enough to rely merely on the instinct for self-preservation. It is necessary to stir up feelings of real hatred and revulsion. End quote. Dang. I, isn't, it's disturbing, right? And it's not my goal to make you feel like, okay, thanks a lot, Brian, for throwing a giant wet blanket right over my day today. But when you understand how people can be manipulated into supporting things that you would think would be absolutely indefensible... This is one of the ways. Grossman explains how Stalin's previous use of hatred assisted the Germans. At an earlier date in the same regions, Stalin himself had mobilized the fury of the masses, whipping it up to the point of frenzy during the campaigns to liquidate the kulaks as a class. These were the farmers who weren't going to get in line with Stalin's plans. And during the extermination of the Trotskyist, uh, Bukhanerite, degenerates and saboteurs. Now, Barry Brownstein says the the result of these campaigns is that the majority of the population obey every order of the authorities as though hypnotized. Yet more is needed. In such a totalitarian atmosphere, Grossman writes, there is a particular minority which actively helps to create the atmosphere of these campaigns. Ideological fanatics. People who take a bloodthirsty delight in the misfortunes of others. And people who want to settle personal scores to steal a man's belongings or take over his flat or job. Most people, however, are horrified at mass murder. Yet Grossman observes one of the most astonishing human traits that comes to light at this time is obedience. Now, a mindset of obedience was fostered, trumping other human virtues. Grossman asks us to learn from this history lesson and ponders, did a new trait suddenly appear in human nature? Grossman answers his question, no. This obedience bears witness to a new force acting on human beings. The extreme violence of totalitarian social systems proved able to paralyze the human spirit throughout whole continents. And Grossman explains how dividing people into the worthy and unworthy was justified by the trick of redefining humanitarianism. Quote, a man who has placed his soul in the service of fascism declares an evil and dangerous slavery to be the only true good. Rather than overtly renouncing human feelings, he declares the crimes committed by fascism to be the highest form of humanitarianism. He agrees to divide people up into the pure and the worthy and the impure and unworthy. End quote. I'm sorry, that one sent a little bit of a chill up my spine because I, I think we're seeing a very similar sifting taking place, only it's, it's being done along the lines of the vaccinated and the unvaccinated, the impure and unworthy, you know, versus the pure and the worthy. You know, the, the tactics never really change, do they? Grossman, whose novel was finally published in 1980 after a microfilmed copy was smuggled from the Soviet Union, rightly warns that the future of freedom depends on our individual choices. Quote, does human nature undergo a true change in the cauldron of totalitarian violence? Does man lose his innate yearning for freedom? The fate of both man 
and the totalitarian state depends on the answer to this question. If human nature does change, then the eternal and worldwide triumph of the dictatorial state is assured. If his yearning for freedom remains constant, then the totalitarian state is doomed. End quote. So just a few years after Grossman observed the aftermath of the massacre at Bobby Yar, another journalist, novelist, philosopher, Canadian-American Isabel Patterson offered her observations on human nature and freedom in her book, The God of the Machine. Patterson wrote, quote, most of the harm in the world is done by good people and not by accident, lapse or omission. It's the result of their deliberate actions, long persevered, in, long persevered in rather, which they hold to be motivated by high ideals towards virtuous toward virtuous ends. She added the percentage of positively malignant, vicious or depraved persons is necessarily small. For no species could survive if its members were habitually and consciously bent on injuring one another. Like Grossman, Patterson, too, observed how good people acquiesced and even enabled the slaughtering of millions for a worthy object. Therefore, it is obvious, she says, that in in periods where millions are slaughtered, when torture is practiced, starvation enforced, oppression made a policy, as at present over a large part of the world, and as it has often been in the past... It must be at the behest of very many good people, and even by their direct action for what they consider a worthy object. End quote. Now, Patterson reminds us that the good enablers demand censorship so they can stay comfortable in their wrongdoing. When they are not the immediate executants, they are on record as giving approval, elaborating justifications, or else cloaking facts with silence and discountenancing discussion. Then Patterson asks us to reflect on the grave error made by good people who would not of their conscious, their own conscious intent act to hurt their fellow men. Listen to this. Quote, there must be a very grave error in the means by which they seek to attain their ends. There must even be an error in their primary axioms to permit them to continue using such means. Something is terribly wrong in the procedure somewhere. What is it? We're going to come back to this in just a few minutes on the other side of the break. But I hope this is stirring your conscience. I'm not saying that, uh, you know, you're being handed the keys to the concentration camp and ask, hey, would you guard this place and make sure these people do what they're told until we've worked them to death or otherwise, you know, liquidated them? Now, it, it usually takes smaller, more subtle forms. But the key here is that your obedience is something that can actually be turned into a weapon against you and the people around you. This is why freedom of conscience is so important. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Please feel free to check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. That's where you'll find a link to this excellent essay by Barry Brownstein, Why Good People Enable Totalitarians. And by the way, I know we're talking about, you know, Stalin. We're talking about the Third Reich. We're talking about those who literally put people in camps and massacred them by the millions. But, you know, totalitarianism can take some lesser forms as well. And this to me, this is such a great essay because it warns us about the little ways in which our obedience, our desire to be seen as good, maybe to virtue signal, look how good I am. I do what Dr. Fauci says. 
can come back to harm us because it's harming other people as well. And people don't set out to, to do this because they have malevolence in their hearts. They don't do it because they, they are, you know, sociopathic or psychopathic. They're trying to be good, but they will try to justify what they're doing. And one of the things he points out here, he's, he's quoting um, oh, Patterson, uh, American, Canadian-American Isabel Patterson in her book, The God of the Machine. They think that there must be some kind of an error somewhere. I don't know what the error is, but something's wrong in the procedure somewhere. But, you know, I'm just being obedient. And Barry Brownstein says the grave error that Patterson points to begins with the belief that an individual can have as their primary purpose helping others by commandeering the resources of others. Once that false belief is entrenched, then the only means possible is the power of the collective and the premise that good is collective. In fact, Patterson writes, tyrants can't come to power except with the consent and assistance of good people. Quote, the communist regime in Russia gained control by promising the peasants land in terms the promisers knew to be a lie as understood. Having gained power, the communists took from the peasants the land they already owned and exterminated those who resisted. This was done by plan and intention. And the lie was praised as social engineering by socialist admirers in America. Now of Stalin, Patterson writes, We have the peculiar spectacle of the man who condemned millions of his own people to starvation, admired by philanthropists whose declared aim is to see that everyone in the world has a quart of milk. Now Barry Brownstein says, Grossman asks us to look at the ends shaped by totalitarians, to erode freedom and justify violence. And he explained that both fascism and communism call people to carry out any sacrifice, to accept any means in order to achieve the highest of ends, the future greatness of the motherland, world progress, the future happiness of mankind, of a nation, of a class. The result is the violence of a totalitarian state is so great as to be no longer a means to an end. It becomes an object of mystical worship and adoration. Now, Brownstein says when a totalitarian state demands worship, we understand why totalitarians must control the narrative. We know the COVIDocracy demands allegiance to their one best way. First lockdowns, now vaccines. Dissenters must be silenced. Government claims it must maintain lists of spreaders of misinformation and then partner with Facebook to ensure that only correct narratives are available. Health ambassadors must be sent door to door to share the good word about vaccines. Those who disagree must be demonized. The impure separated from society if they don't accept a vaccine. Those who make different choices than we do, we mentally condemn and righteously proclaim they threaten others. And although lockdowns have ended, as Ethan Yang writes, the intellectual war against them has not been won. We're going to talk a little bit about that in just a few moments. In his 1994, or 1944, rather, in his book, Omnipotent Government, The Rise of the Total State and Total War, Ludwig von Mises wrote, It is the nature of the men handling the apparatus of compulsion and coercion, to overrate its power to work and to strive at subduing all spheres of human life to its immediate influence. 
controlling others through the power of the state, is the occupational disease of rulers, warriors, and civil servants. In other words, says Barry Brownstein, politicians, their corporate cronies, and the faceless administrative state will use their monopoly power of force for destructive purposes. If totalitarianism comes to America, it will have its own flavor. But as Grossman and Patterson warn, tyranny must have citizen enablers. During the pandemic, many good people have had difficulty interpreting events of this time in light of this basic history lesson. And so Brownstein warns, if freedom is under siege in America, it would be wise to quicken our intellectual pace by attending to the emerging illiberal mindset shaping citizens to enable a totalitarian social system. Would you recognize when your chain is being yanked? He says forces are acting to paralyze the human spirit. We should deceive ourselves no longer. Without the consent and assistance of good people, totalitarians have no power. Governments, Mises warned, become liberal only when forced to by the citizens. So what does this mean for you and me? All right, are we going to just we grab our pitchforks and torches and we go, you know, overthrow the government and, you know, put a new one in its place? Yeah, not likely. As you can see, those who are sitting at the top of that power structure right now are intensely paranoid. So much so that they keep referring to what happened on January 6th as an insurrection. Clearly it wasn't. And clearly there were more state actors involved, as in members of the federal government or informants or agents provocateur involved, than were being told. They're very scared that they're losing their awe over the people, their, their sense of control. But believe it or not, the thing that we can do that, that effectively renders them just a bunch of people in suits standing around making noise is to withdraw our consent. Now, I realize this is not going to be a perfect thing. It's not a clean cut, right? You withdraw your consent. I'm no longer going to pay my taxes. Chances are pretty good. The IRS is going to find a way to reach out to you and minister to you. Probably landing you in a courtroom and possibly in jail after they strip you of anything that you own. But there are numerous little ways in which you can ignore politicians. And I'm going to turn this to to the idea that I know that the push right now for a return of lockdowns is pretty strong. I mean, the mask mandates are coming back. The the panic that's being pushed over the uh, the Delta variant. I guess there's a new variant, too. I just heard about this today. The Lambda variant. Don't know anything about it, but there's new variants. And oh, my gosh, we got to be so careful about what's happening. And oh, wow, the pandemic is soaring out of control again. No. If you can discover the power of the word no, You are on the path to reclaiming control of your life, but more importantly, you are also firmly on the path of whatever evil, whatever totalitarianism, whatever misuse of the public's trust by those in power isn't going to have your help and your support. Paraphrasing Alexander Solzhenitsyn, let the lie come into the world, let it prevail even, but not through me. I don't know how to emphasize how how powerful that realization is. You know, we all kind of worry, I think, in our own way about how can I make a difference? Really? Come on. I'm one person. I have no. I mean, look, I think I feel like I have a pretty decent platform. 
I have no idea how many people I'm reaching on a daily or weekly basis, but I have a pretty good idea that uh, this message is getting out there. It's cutting through some of the fuzz and, and, and it's actually reaching people. But I wonder, too, does it do any good? Is it actually accomplishing anything? And I can't answer that with, with any confidence as to, oh, absolutely. Yes, why people come up to me all the time telling me how it's changed their lives. No, that, that doesn't happen nearly as often as, as one would hope. But there's one place where I have absolute confidence. And that is whatever is going on, whatever, whatever you know, grab for power is taking place, it's not going to succeed with my help. I have the power to deny my consent and deny the legitimacy that those power seekers are looking for. I'm just one person, but if lots of people do that, hey, we're in good shape. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. A quick shout-out to Patriot Home Mortgage, particularly the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage for being sponsors of this program. If you go to my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, you can find a link to get in touch with them. Otherwise, I'll tell you this. Patriot Home Mortgage is located at 619 South Bluff in St. George. You can call them at 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715-386. And yes, Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. It's a hot real estate market if you are looking for financing, VA loans, traditional loans, reverse mortgages. The Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage is the team you need to talk to, especially if you're looking to make an offer on a home and time is of the essence. Well, if you want an excellent uh, primer on what legitimate government should and should not do, it is really hard to beat the essay, The Law by Frederick Bastiat. I believe this was published back in 1850. Maybe in the late 1840s. Okay, it's been around for a long time. Coming up on almost 200 years. And yet, uh, it's, it's time-tested wisdom. It's, it's, it's some of the best information about why do we have governments in the first place? What should governments rightly do? There's a phrase that Bastiat introduced into uh, my lexicon, uh, which is legalized plunder. And you think about what government does these days. I mean, from, from the local level right on up to the federal level, legalized plunder is a thing. So I came across uh, an essay that uh, starts with Bastiat and builds upon it and, uh, and actually goes into a lot of uh, different uh, background in terms of the, the, cl- the classic, classical liberal thinkers who shaped you know, our understanding of what legitimate civil government is, is all about. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research, Sophia Spinazzi. I hope I'm saying your name right, Sophia. Excellent, excellent article. Sophia says, I spent most of the 15-week classical political philosophy course I took last spring parsing through Plato's Republic. That's 528 pages. By the way, it's not an easy read. And she says, this was in conjunction with other literature, classes, and activities, but even if I were to focus solely on the Republic, I would expect me to take many days to read, let alone understand. At the end of 2020, though, 
Congressmen had just an a-, a matter of hours to familiar my- familiarize themselves with the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021. 5,593 pages, more than 10.5 times the number of pages in the Republic before they voted on it. She says that's absurd and impossible. And it's more than just one lengthy law. It illustrates a trend of United States law. The set of formal written rules the country recognizes, transitioning from prompting economic and human flourishing to hindering them. So here's some historical background. Between 1846 and 1850, the federal government enacted an average of 63 public laws per year. Now, that's just a four-year period, right? The average length of each of these laws was approximately 823 words based on data from the Library of Congress. Between 2015 and 2020, however, Congress passed an average of 179 public laws per year, and the average length was approximately 13,940 words, over 2.5 times more, 16 times longer. Regulations with the force of law make this change even more impactful. And it's, it's fascinating. There's a, a nice graphic here showing the total pages published in the Code of Federal Regulations from 1950 to 2019. That growth looks exponential. It's, it's ridiculous how much it's grown. So from here, she talks about the consequences. And she references his, the 1850 pamphlet of the law from French economist Frederick Bastiat, commending the United States for having a law that most faithfully fulfills its role to uphold the freedom and property of each person. In fact, in the law, he, he says, you know, the purpose for having the law is that justice prevails. Now, he's not talking about that government prevails. He's talking that justice, what is fair, prevails. And in this case, Sophia Spinazzi says, well, you know, when, when we look at, uh, um, when, when we look at the, the current uh, scope of, of laws, you can look back to things like the, the 1850 General Appropriation Bill that similarly appro- appropriated funds for the civil and diplomatic expenses of the government. You know, that bill was only 21 pages long compared to 5,593 pages. Now, Bastiat, she says, warns us that as the law expands, it forsakes its purpose. It takes from many to benefit a few and becomes unlimited, unequal, and unclear. This law is unjust and has ruinous consequences. Now, she goes on to say the current scope of U.S. law offers the government an unrestrained role in organizing society. The law permeates health care, educational plans in schools, numerous social programs. Every facet of people's lives becomes a product of government action. And these laws do not come from voluntary exchanges between individuals, but from forced redistribution by government. Government's perverse incentives and lack of social no- or lack of local knowledge, rather, make it impossible for legislation to succeed. And its overreach crowds out individual and community responsibility and initiative in society. She says this increasingly expansive law applies unequally, inviting rent seeking, which benefits a relatively small, specific group and disperses the cost of such policies across many people. As Mankur Olson explained, rent seekers usually defeat the unorganized, diverse victims in legislative contests. 
Through dishonest means, the well-connected supplant productive entrepreneurs in reaping rewards. So the law has not just expanded and intensified, but also increased in intense in complexity, rather. As the law becomes more complex and less accessible to the citizenry as it grows in length, its aims are obfuscated. In Three Felonies a Day, How the Feds Target the Innocent, Harvey Silvergate argues that ordinary citizens and even federal judges disagree about the meaning of America's many hopelessly ambiguous laws. As in the former Soviet Union, Silvergate claims U.S. federal prosecutors today can choose victims and then search the law books to pin some offense on them. By the way, if you haven't read that book, it is totally worth your while. The mere possibility that a nation is ruled arbitrarily by people instead of by the rule of law disincentivizes productive activity. As James Madison noted, where an excess of power prevails, property of no sort is duly respected. No man is safe in his opinions, his person, his faculties, or his possessions, and therefore has little incentive to do anything more than what is strictly necessary to live through the day. A recipe for poverty. Now, the solution was something that Bastiat proposed in his 1850 pamphlet, The Law. He believed the law, properly understood, is rooted in individual rights, and its sole purpose is to secure the free and inoffensive use of each individual's faculties. This law is justice, and it avoids the consequences discussed above and generates practical success. Since the law's well-defined purpose constrains it, it provides a framework where individuals and communities thrive. Free from government overreach, people are well-equipped to develop a society that best encompasses individual preferences. As Bastiat observed, what countries have the most, the happiest, most moral, and most peaceful peoples? And the answer is those countries in which the law intervenes the least in private activity, in which the government is the least felt. So when the law applies equally and recognizes that everyone has an equal right to life, freedom, and property, rent-seeking cannot bear fruit. By the way, rent-seeking is just kind of a fancy way of talking about uh, political lobbying, special interests, seeking you know government handouts in a very organized fashion. They're gaming the system. This article goes on to say that uh, when the law applies equally, it no longer detracts resources for more productive activities. The winners are those who add value to others' lives. And finally, since justice is a given quantity that is unmovable and inalterable and does not allow any ifs or buts, the law is clear and precise. Everyone can know and understand the rules by which they compete to produce and procure goods, which creates an institutional setting conducive to development and flourishing. Now, the U.S. can return to the law Bastiat once praised us for by, as he suggests, purging our laws of the legal plunder that has corroded incentives to work and create and work harder and smarter. It is under the law of justice, under the regime of right, under the influence of freedom, security, stability, and responsibility, that each person will attain his full value, the full dignity of his being, and that humanity will accomplish with order and calmness, doubtless with slowness, but certainty, the progress which is its destiny. Great words from Frederick Bastiat and an excellent column from Sophia Spinaze. I'll have a link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. We'll be back for our final segment right after this.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. You know, the the more we move forward and and we see this uh, this push, I just was watching during the break here a quick uh, news conference from someone at the University of Utah. And, oh, we've got to we got to get people vaccinated no matter what. Uh, you know, COVID is is coming back. It's more dangerous than ever. And I'm sorry, but uh, you know, the, the the sad thing to me is that there are a lot of people who probably have a great amount of, of information and education and, and technical knowledge at their disposal. But it seems that uh, the medical community has become attached at the hip to government. And that makes it very hard for me to trust what they are telling me. And, and those doctors that do speak out and say, hey, I, you know, I don't know if, if this is the best way to go. Or uh, I think it was Jay Bhattacharya, one of the signers of the Great Barrington Declaration, saw an interview with him done earlier today saying, don't do lockdowns again. The lockdowns themselves carry more bad, you know, uh, bad effects and harm to people than the actual virus itself. Not denying the virus, not saying it's a conspiracy, but just... Just pointing out the lockdowns do nothing to sway the path that that virus takes. And yet it appears that we have people lining up and pushing again for, you know, well, we've got to do this. We have to do it. We have no choice. That's a load of fertilizer. You see no choice. You choose to see no choice because it fits whatever your agenda happens to be. So, you know, my answer to this is, you know, I know it's got to sound like, Brian, are you trying to tell people to question the experts among you? Are you telling them to question the people, the public servants, the public health people are trying to save our lives? I'm just saying these are decisions you need to be making for yourself. And don't you dare accept the idea that, well, somebody else smarter than me has to be the one to tell me this. Some people are going to say, well, I feel like I would be safer getting the vaccine. By all means, then do it. But I know of a couple of people who say, I've got some kind of an immune deficiency or something like that. Taking a vaccine is not an option for me. And I think those people have the right to absolutely choose not to take the vaccine. And the rest of us have the right to choose. Is it in my interest? Am I willing to weigh the risks and the benefits and see which one is more likely to to do, you know, what, what I want done? The problem is we've got too many people who are looking to force the issue. And I, I'm not telling you that you have to be disobedient just like me, but I, I will tell you just right up front. You want to force the issue on me, I will misbehave. So don't force me. Don't force other people. If you can't persuade people that your cause or your ideas are something worth embracing... Maybe work on, work on, you know, presenting your ideas or examine your ideas a little more closely and see, are they really that good? As a general rule of thumb, any idea that's so good it has to be implemented at the point of a gun or a bayonet is probably a crappy idea. So the harder you push, the harder many of us will resist. 
And maybe that's the goal. Maybe you're trying to provoke some kind of a reaction. Maybe you're trying to provoke somebody pushing back to the point you say, see, look how irrational and how unreasonable these people are. Well, I don't I don't mean to scare you here, but I'll tell you the guy who took the the bulldozer and welded steel plates and cement armor over it and then leveled a good portion of his town. He made a comment about how he was once a reasonable man until he was pushed far enough that as a reasonable man, he was forced to do unreasonable things. And I think we all, you know, have a similar line in the sand. And that's going to look different for people. I'm not saying go create a killdozer and, you know, run over the town. You know, tragically, there was only one life that was lost that day, and it was his. And he took his own life after his bulldozer became, you know, stuck in one of the buildings. But boy, he took it out of the hide of those uh, city officials who had been a thorn in his side for years. And I'm not saying what he did was right. But at the same time, I can understand why a guy who, was, who had nothing left to lose at that point would do something like that. So I guess, you know, for, for the control freaks, if you, if you feel like you have to push it, if you have, to, you have to make sure people understand that, you know, this is not something that's optional, you will do it. If you push people to the point where they have nothing left to lose, well, I feel sorry for you because you have just created the most dangerous creature on the face of the earth. And paradoxically, as uh, Solzhenitsyn pointed out, you know, after, after his time in the gulag, he said, when you take from a man everything, when he has nothing left to lose, you have freed him. Personally, I believe the thing that keeps a lot of people right now from, from taking a harder stand has everything to do with the fact that, well, I have, I have more to lose. I have a family to think of. You know, I have a job. I have a career. I have a home or something like that. But as you continue to push these people to the margins, you take those things away from them. Uh, don't be surprised if there aren't more, you know, killdozers out there flattening the town in, in a quest for, for retribution or, you know, for justice. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying those who create such situations cannot be said to be blameless. They should have understood what they were doing by yanking on the tiger's tail. One final note here. This is an article. I won't have time to share much of it, but um, it's it's from James Bovard, which to me, at the get-go, when I see something that has been published by James, James Bovard, I like to see what he has to say because Jim has a solid take on a lot of stuff. And in particular, he talks about the honest history fraud. I know you've heard probably more than you want to about critical race theory. And the American Federation of Teachers President Randy Weingarten recently proclaimed, well, my union members have a right to teach honest history in government classrooms. But Bovard says putting politicians, bureaucrats and union zealots in charge of a curriculum is the worst recipe for candor. Rather than truth, the likely result will be vaccinating young Americans from recognizing how Leviathan imperils their liberty. You can see why I like the guy. He's got serious clarity. Now, Weingarten's protests were spurred by backlash in some states against critical race theory. That's the latest politically correct fad from activist educators. CRT received a steroid boost from the New York Times 1619 series, which ludicrously claimed that the American Revolution was fought to preserve slavery. 
By the way, AIER's Phil Magnus debunked that charade in many articles, as well as a book, which is linked to in the uh, article, which you'll find in the show notes at the BrianHydeShow.com. According to Weingarten and other CRT proponents, American schools criminally ignore the racial abuses in American history. However, the vast majority of state curriculums already teach that slavery was an abomination and a national disgrace. Good gravy. It's been 50 years since I was in grade school. But I remember very clearly, we were never taught that slavery was, oh, yeah, it was okay, man. It was like, you know, Song of the South. Uncle Remus sat there and sang songs to the master all evening long there on the front porch. No. Weingarten actually boasted, we teach history, not hate. But for decades, James Bovard says, teachers in government schools have dismally failed to teach students history. Surveys show that most public school students are historically illiterate, clueless on key events and major issues of American history. Public schools have long disdained mere historical facts, preferring instead vapid narratives that resemble good versus evil fairy tales. Because students are mostly clueless on history, they're blank slates ready to be indoctrinated with any claptrap that the schools hustle. Now, he concludes by pointing out here that for teachers unions, the CRT uproar is a welcome distraction from the debacles permeating public school. For many governments, for many students, rather, government schooling is akin to being lashed into a dentist chair where the mind numbing drilling never ends. President Biden has an easy solution. We're going to provide four additional years of school to everyone in America, two years of universal preschool and two years of free community college. Well, that's great. School's failure becomes a debit card entitling government to commandeer more years of citizens' lives. Bovard says trusting politicians to teach children honest history is like relying on plantation owners to teach slaves how to read. The best lesson young Americans could receive from studying history is a radical skepticism of officialdom and all its hokum. He says virtue signaling is no substitute for learning how to defend one's rights and liberties. Maybe that's something you and I should be doing for the young people in our lives. You don't need a teaching degree. You don't need to have some deep doctorate, you know, and expertise. You just have to have a willingness to be learning, reading original sources, doing original research, and then discussing it with the people who matter most. It's actually kind of fun, especially when done around a campfire, preferably with some treats. <laughs> Check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Thanks again for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. This is The Brian Hyde Show.